Well, hello again, friends. Welcome to the latest episode of In With The Old. As always, we're a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. As always, I'm Dr. Brian Koning. I'm so glad you're here as we are wrapping up this first series. We're getting to put some of the pieces that we've been talking about together today. And I'm joined by the incomparable Dr. Tim Howe. <laughs> Dr. Tim, what's going on today? How are you doing? Oh my goodness, what a rousing introduction. I'm doing great, Brian. And uh, and I'm excited. I'm excited to put the pieces together today. We're going to dive deep into a biblical text. So what could possibly be better than diving into the Old Testament with a good friend and with our listeners? It's awesome. I'm doing great. Yeah, there are very few things that are going to compare to the the joy that I, I think we both had doing this podcast. And listeners, mm. I hope you have been enjoying it as well. Uh, even if no one listened to this, I think Dr. Tim and I might still do this <laughs> podcast just because this is so much fun for us. Oh, yeah. And today, we are going to try to put everything together. So in Series 1, we've called it Something Old, Something New. And we've been hopefully introducing the Old Testament as something that can be exciting. We've tried to lay these frameworks, groundwork for how you approach the text. And we thought as we were wrapping this all up for series one, we want to kind of show how this can help in a practical way. And so, Tim, we're, we're going to be dealing with a book today, aren't we? We are, yeah. So we're going we're gonna to dive into Habakkuk. And, uh, and as we think about this, uh, for our listeners, of course, we mentioned this before, uh, Brian's doctoral work really focused on intertextuality between Habakkuk and Job, and Brian, you can share more about that if you want to, but uh, Habakkuk is one of those books that that really meets us where we're at, and, and this is one of the reasons why I love the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really, in one sense, very raw. Uh, the, mm. the authors don't really hold back. They don't hold back the kind of vicious pictures of violence and other things. They don't hold back the brokenness of the world. And in Habakkuk, we see someone who's dealing with very real questions of life, and and just like we all do, uh, but sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to because we think it's either unrighteous or unholy or God is somehow going to, you know, send his lightning bolt down on us, but Habakkuk shows us otherwise. And so, uh, Brian, we're going to dive deep into Habakkuk in this episode, and we're going to try and bring some of the pieces together. I'll just lay out the, the kind of layout of the book for us, and then you can give us maybe some historical background. The book of Habakkuk starts with a superscription in 1-1. Uh, there's a lament in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. God then replies to Habakkuk in chapter 1, 5 through 11. Chapter 1, 12 through 2-1 is Habakkuk's second lament. And then in 2-2 through 2-20, we see God's reply. And then there's this, this famous kind of closing psalm that's so powerful and poetic. So there's that basic layout of the book. We've got a lament or reply, a lament or reply, and then a psalm in response to God's reply. Uh, but Brian, as we we think about that, can you give us some of the historical setting? This is something we talked about, right, in the first episodes, understanding the historical background, trying to situate it as much as possible. Can you help us, uh, introduce us to Habakkuk in a little bit of the historical setting? Sure. So listeners, if you have not taken the time, I might encourage you now, just pause it real quick. Tim walked us through the layout of the book, and that will be very helpful. But it might also be worth just 10 minutes of your time. Just go read the book. It's very short. It's three chapters. Each of the chapters is not overly long. So maybe just pause this and go read it and come back. And uh, now assuming that you maybe have done that or are more familiar with the book, uh, one of the interesting things that I really like about Habakkuk, Tim, is that a lot of the information 
has to be inferred. Mm. So when you go to the book, some of the prophets, right, will tell us, all right, here's the prophet, here may be his parents, here's where he lived or served, here are the kings that were reigning during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. What do you get with Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk 1.1, the oracle that he saw, boom, and we are <laughs> off. Like, there, there's no background information within the book. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, we actually do have enough information to piece some things together because we are given three important things. First, we're given the prophet's name and... Listeners, if you've been around the Bible and heard sermons, names often are brought up as important. Now, we can go too far that way, but Habakkuk's name actually does reveal something to us. Uh, We see there's a sin he is calling out. That will actually help us as well. And we know who is being sent to punish the people of Judah, and that's the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, depending on your translation. Uh, And from these three things, we can actually infer some things if we know the world of the Old Testament and its kind of general timeline. So the first thing we can infer is the name Habakkuk is not a typical Jewish name. So most Jewish names, it's not always clear in English, but most Jewish names usually have three root consonants. There are exceptions to this, but think of David, DVD. Uh, Obviously, it's not DVD in Hebrew, but uh, (laughs) you get the point. Um, Habakkuk doesn't fit that normal form. Instead, his name is likely Akkadian in origin. So this is not to say Habakkuk isn't Jewish, but rather we're starting to see that within the people of Judah, so the southern kingdom, which is he's going to be a part of, there's definitely an influence of foreign cultures starting to press in. Even prophets are not necessarily being given traditional Jewish names, uh, but instead he has an Akkadian name, most likely. There is some debate on that. The rabbis have some different ideas, but uh, I, I think it's an Akkadian origin. So his name tells us a little bit. We are at the end of the southern kingdom's power. So that starts to zero us in on the timeline. Second thing we see is that there's a sin that Habakkuk is complaining about. Tim, I like how you put it. This book hits us right where we live. Habakkuk is going to give a very raw expression of frustration going, where are you, God, when I see everything around me just going out the window, right? Mm -hmm. There's extreme moral decay. Now, if we piece this into the historical books, we know that near the end of the kingdom of Judah, you start having a series of really bad kings with very similar sounding names, Jehoiakim, (laughs) Jehoiakim. Um, Most likely, this is Jehoiakim as the king. That's not for certain, but he is the most likely candidate. And we know that during this time, uh, he is trying to wheel and deal with the superpowers of the time, which is Egypt and Assyria. To pay off bribes and tribute, he is robbing the temple. He is taxing the people. It's a very horrible time period. And in fact, if you want more context, you can read the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah is going to be a contemporary of Habakkuk. And we're going to see that kind of moral degradation, not just from the king's standpoint, but even in the priests themselves. Mm -hmm. And so those two things help us. And the last thing is that the Babylonians are mentioned Mm. and and. Jumping ahead just slightly, Habakkuk is going to be somewhat shocked that the Babylonians are going to be used, or the Chaldeans, uh, and yet he knows who they are, and that's important. Mm. That actually narrows in quite specifically where we're at. The Babylonians, when they come onto the scene in the Old Testament text, are actually a captive people themselves. 
They are a vassal state of the mighty Assyrian Empire. And yet, right at the end of the 7th century, as you go into the 6th century, they are going to overthrow the Assyrians and themselves become a dominant power in that region. And in fact, they will be the ones, uh, right, Tim, that ultimately sack Jerusalem and carry people off. This leads us into the books of Daniel and so forth. So you put all these pieces together, and although Habakkuk doesn't tell us precisely when he's writing, we can pigeonhole him to somewhere around the late 7th to early 6th century. If, listeners, you like a timeline, we're around 400 years after King David. So we're... Not quite at the midpoint between where David and Christ come. We're still closer to David, but we are about 400 years after that. So this is kind of the milieu we are dealing with here. Judah still is a nation. The northern kingdom is likely destroyed and gone by this point. You have sin and calamity starting to press in. And in the midst of this, this prophet is going to call out, God, where are you? Mm Why are you not acting? Mm. So that's kind of the setting that can kind of frame this for us, Tim. Okay, perfect. So, Brian, I'm going to try and lean into your expertise a little bit here uh, because you've considered this more deeply than I have. When I think about that idea that there is no you know, specific timestamp that, uh, like with the other prophets, he doesn't tell us specifically who's reigning. We can use context clues to figure it out. Do you think that's possible? It's possible that that's intentional almost to give this a more timeless feel. Like that's my first reaction as I think about that is maybe that's intentional so that we understand Habakkuk is dealing with a, almost a timeless issue rather than something that God wanted to be so staked down to a particular context. Am I reading too much into that or you think that's possible? Well, I think that's possible, and I think that maybe helps fit some of the complaints of Habakkuk seem to be directed at King Jehoiakim and his actions. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also a retrospective eye being cast back. Mm -hmm. It's not just like things have gone bad and and Israel has uh, apostated themselves in his generation, is it? This is a reoccurring cycle. This is not just sin in his time. Sin and falling away are unfortunately just part of life. Life is broken. And so, yes, I think there's this kind of retrospective and timeless eye being cast back over Israel's history. And we don't even have to just purely suppose that. The psalm, which is chapter 3 of Habakkuk, is actually going to go back and recapitulate or recount a lot of the history of Israel to try to kind of say, where is God in the midst of this? Well, Mm. God is present, and we are the ones who have been sinful. So I, I think that's... I think seeing a timeless aspect works. I think it also speaks to the importance. There is no time for messing around. Habakkuk isn't someone that is mostly content and just kind of has a, huh, I kind of wonder where God is. <laughs> no, this is urgent. This is present. Um, Joe, uh, rather, Habakkuk is going to use language that is somewhat shocking in how bold he is going to challenge God here. Yeah. Uh, and so I think some of that also keys us into, this is an emotionally charged book. There's no time for pleasantries. We got to get to the meat of the problem here. Well, sweet. Let, let's do that then, Brian. I mean, as we think of Habakkuk, it, it, it's different in the sense that Habakkuk, rather than proclaiming in one sense a vision from God to the people, Habakkuk turns the tables, right? He, you know, he says, all right, mm-hmm. God, you know, in, in, in this overflow of emotion, and really in one sense, the desperation of what he's thinking and feeling, um, he turns to God and, and he really 
ask the questions of God. So walk us through this a little bit, Brian. Walk us through the the dialogue with God, the different cycles. What does Habakkuk say? Uh, How does it relate to, for instance, Job and some of the questions that Job asked God? Walk us through that, Brian. Sure. So part of the beauty of reading the story, one of the things you'll see, listeners, is that speaker changes aren't really marked. So you know how sometimes in text you'll say, and God said, and Moses said, and David said, or something like that to tell you who's talking. None of those are present here. In fact, you have to look at the grammar to see verb change to to kind of figure out who is talking in, in any situation. Habakkuk is going to bring forward in his first cycle, which is verses two through four of chapter one. And he's going to bring forward this challenge that God has been silent in the face of sin, right? I cry out to you violence, but you do not listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law, the Torah has been paralyzed. It's not going forth. If we were correct in our dating, by the way, this is exactly what Jeremiah faces, mm-hmm. right? Jeremiah goes to the temple and he sees people thinking that the temple is some talisman mm-hmm. and no longer trusting in God as a living God present with his people. And so Habakkuk is bringing the central challenge. And in Habakkuk 2 through 4, Tim, you mentioned Job, and this is important. Listeners, if you go to Job chapter 19, verse 6, 7, and read it, maybe a couple of verses there, do you know what you're going to see? Job uses almost the exact same words to challenge God. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Habakkuk is linking his story to Job, but he's going to change it a little bit. See, Habakkuk has faith in God, maybe a better understanding of who God is, a understanding informed by Job's story, actually, I believe. Mm -hmm. Habakkuk has faith. That's why he's asking God, right? If he didn't believe God could actually answer these questions or do something, why would he pray? Instead, he has this problem. He can't square his theology with his experience. Mm. And in some ways, that was Job's problem as well. He couldn't square what is going on in my life with my theology or understanding of God. Could God be doing evil, Job somewhat asks. Habakkuk is not going to ask that. He's in fact going to affirm, much like Elihu from Job's story, that God does not commit injustice. God is righteous. But instead, he's going to expand Job's story. If Job settled the fact that God is righteous and God rightly rules the universe, Habakkuk is now going to ask the question, if that is true, then whence cometh evil? Mm. Where is God in the midst of sin and suffering? Because it's not from him, and yet he is in control of all things. So how do I do this? How do I understand where you are, God, when you don't punish wickedness? And if we put our context into those historical books, Tim, right, Habakkuk is quite right to be upset. Mm-hmm. The people of Israel, by the end of their history, especially the kingdom of Judah, are engaging in all sorts of deplorable activities, theology. They're starting to worship other gods. Habakkuk is right to be frustrated. And he goes to God and says, where are you? Mm. So that's where we start. God is going to reply then to Habakkuk, starting in verse 5 and going through either verse 11 or 12, There's a bit of debate about that. We won't get into it. It doesn't change much here. But God replies to Habakkuk, much like he did to Job. He says, guess what? You need to pick up your eyes. You need to understand that there's more going on here than you can see. I love God's words, and it's quite intentional. God is going to use all the words Habakkuk used in his first speech cycle, and he's going to throw them back at you. He says, you say, I haven't seen. You need to open your eyes. Mm. Be amazed. (laughs) You wouldn't believe what I'm doing even if I told you. Like, it's an amazing put down. Mm -hmm. 
God is a great uh, debater, for lack of a better term. He really likes to put really fine points when he makes his replies to people, if people uh, talk to him. But the beauty is he replies, right? Yeah. Anyway, God comes to Habakkuk and he says, guess what? I have seen. I have seen the sin of my people and I am punishing it. I am right now raising up the Chaldeans, a fearsome nation, a mighty nation, and they are going to come and they're going to carry my people away into captivity. They're going to punish them. These people will pay back Judah for their sin. I have seen Habakkuk and punishment is coming. Now, Tim, there's a truism. Be careful what you ask for, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Habakkuk is the example of that. Be careful what you ask for. Because it's fascinating, isn't it? Habakkuk said, why aren't you punishing sin? And God says, oh, buddy, just hold on. I am going to punish sin. Starting Habakkuk's second speech cycle. So as soon as God's done, Habakkuk kind of sits there. I just envision him open mouth going, I didn't mean punish us that hard. Maybe a plague. Maybe, you know, (laughs) send the angel of the Lord down. Like just maybe take (laughs) some people. But this one? Listeners, if you've read the book, right, you see his second speech cycle is a lot of like, how are you going to do this, God? Why are you using sinners Mm -hmm. to punish your people? How does this bring glory to God? They, he goes into this poetic discussion, right? They sacrifice and bring glory to their nets and their weapons. His point being, God, you're going to use them to accomplish your purpose, but they aren't going to give you the glory. They're going to say, hey, we did this. We're awesome. So how is this? Bring forward your glory. Is this punishment actually going to be the end of your people? Uh, Tim, in 12, I believe, because mm-hmm. I don't have the text in front of me, we actually have a case of the uh, the imitations of the scribes. Mm. Habakkuk says, oh, God, aren't you from everlasting? We will not die. Well, if you read the text, Habakkuk didn't say we will not die. He says you will not die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and listeners, sometimes the rabbis, out of an abundance of caution— changed how you should read certain texts because they were afraid they might be sacrilegious. And they didn't like Habakkuk implying that God could die, even though he's saying God won't die. Um, So they changed it vocally to say, we won't die. But Habakkuk is actually making an interesting point here. He says, God, you're everlasting. You don't die, but we do. Mm -hmm. Is this punishment the end of your people? What is going on? How can (laughs) this... Sinful people of Babylon actually be the agents of your justice. You're, you're, you're trying to fix a wrong with a wrong, God. This doesn't make sense. It's a very, just like Habakkuk's first speech, it's a very bold challenge. Yeah. But Tim, this is where I, I, I fall in love with Habakkuk a little bit. Because listeners, as you get to the end, and especially turn the page as it were to chapter 2, verse 1, it's Habakkuk's response. After he's done talking to God, after he's given his challenge, he says, I'm going to stand on my watch post and wait. That's such a fascinating idea. Mm -hmm. He's a prophet. Prophets bring the word of God to the people. But he doesn't make up a fake prophecy. He doesn't bring up a comforting word just because he knows the people want to hear it. He says, I'm going to have to go and sit and wait. Even a prophet of God can't make God act in his own time. Mm -hmm. Right? Habakkuk can't force God's hand. He says, I'm going to go and sit and wait. And unlike Job, who threw down a gauntlet and says, God, I'll see you in court. You owe me an explanation. Habakkuk comes up and says, I'm going to wait. I'm going to get my answer. And that very last line of 2-1, he says, I think I'm going to be shown that I'm wrong. And I can't wait to see what that is. Mm -hmm. He's willing to humble himself. He says, I am the human. God is God. 
I am bold enough and I trust in my God enough that I can ask him this difficult question. But at the end of the day, I'm going to wait and I'm going to listen. And this idea is going to come back in Psalm 3. But um, I think that's just a key point that we don't skip past. Brian, let me let me jump in on this because I love that. I think in part uh, because when we read Job, okay, we understand him to be very audacious. He's very bold. You know, you know, I want to, you know, God, I'm calling you to the courtroom. And of course, God turns the table yep. on him. But I almost think, you know, as we look at Job, we look at him and we're like, I don't feel like I could ever do that. You know, we we know instinctively, I don't feel righteous enough to call God mm-hmm. to the dock, as it were. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that, but maybe we can relate a little bit more to Habakkuk where we can say, God, I, I want to know what you say. I want to know your word, and I'm just going to stand on my post until you answer me. Do, do you think it's maybe a little bit more relatable as we think to Habakkuk, as, as we take that posture ourselves, knowing that God will allow us to ask the question, but having that kind of humble attitude, do you think that's something we can take for ourselves? I think so, absolutely, because I, I think, at least in my own life, Tim, and maybe in yours as well, mm-hmm. I, I've sometimes felt timid. Yeah, I am annoyed, I'm frustrated, but man, God is is righteous, and I can't come before him with my questions. Mm-hmm. I need to, This is my problem, I need to deal with it. Habakkuk strikes a very fine balance of being bold, being audacious. He is challenging God. He says, I do not get this. I have a theology and I have an experience and they are not the same. Yeah, and and Brian, I think even for us as Christians, we can almost use the cross as an excuse not to ask those questions. And I would actually just encourage people not to do that. I mean, those, those burning yeah. questions are still there, and, and in part, the Scripture is inspired to help us know we can ask those questions. Jesus asked those questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and and yeah. so it's also telling, I believe, that both the wisdom literature and the prophets, they really try to show us, man, there is a limit to what we can know and understand. So at times, and you said it earlier, Brian, and this might help transition us to one of the most important passages about walking by faith or faithfulness, and and you're going to talk about that. Um, Like, the idea that God does not want us to ask questions of Him is not true. In fact, asking the questions might be the greatest evidence of our faith. I absolutely agree, because I think the the key thing is we need to be able to ask questions of God because that's how we wrestle through our faith. That's how we deal with these questions. And Habakkuk shows us that here. And just to echo your point, Tim, listeners, there's no problem in asking questions of God. Yes. The thing we need to prepare ourselves for, though, is to receive the answer because guess what? God gives answers. Yes. And they're not easy answers. They don't fit on mugs. They don't fit on greeting cards. And so we need to prepare ourselves to to hear from God when he comes to us. So excellent points, Tim. Yeah. Well, you know, gird your loins, he says to Job. And uh, so here we go, Brian, walk us through God's response. And this may be the most familiar uh, part of Habakkuk to most of us because we do see it in the New Testament. Walk us through this second cycle, God's second response to Habakkuk. Uh, and, and help us understand, what does it mean the righteous will live by faith? Yeah, so starting in chapter 2, verse 2, God begins his second speech to Habakkuk, which takes up the rest of chapter 2. So uh, again, we've mentioned it before, chapter and verse breaks are not inspired, and sometimes we see that they they miss things. 2-1 is probably part of the end of the story of chapter 1. So chapter 2, you can really say, begins in verse 2. And God says, Habakkuk, I want you to write down the prophecy. 
And I want you to make it so plain, so obvious that even the one running can read it, right? I want to be unambiguous. I want to be clear with what I'm about to tell you. The Babylonians, right? The proud, their hearts, their souls, their lives, they are not straight. They will be punished. They will be dealt with. That's going to be what uh, a lot of chapter two actually deals with. But then we get that very familiar phrase, but the righteous shall live by faith. I think we mentioned it either last episode or a couple episodes ago. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, twice by Paul, once by the author of Hebrews. And it's an amazing statement. It's a powerful statement. And I think then I, I mentioned it's possibly mistranslated. I want to expound on that a little bit. There's two ways you can render the Hebrew here. You could say the righteous ones shall live by their faith or faithfulness, or you can say the righteous ones shall live by its faithfulness. The it Hmm. being the vision that Habakkuk is recording. Uh, Grammatically, that's possible. And I think that's what was intended. Because here is going to be God's overarching point in the second speech cycle. Habakkuk, you're afraid that this punishment is too harsh. That I'm using the unrighteous to punish the righteous. That I might destroy my people. By no means. I am a just God. And I will call all deeds to account. The Babylonians are sinners. I'm going to use them to punish you, and in turn, they themselves will ultimately be punished. They aren't escaping things. Don't worry about that. Whether it's someone from Judah or someone from Babylon, the unrighteous have to be accounted for, and they have to answer to me. My people, however, endure. Why? Because I've declared it to be so. I am a God who keeps his word. Unlike people, I am faithful generation to generation. I am a God of covenant fidelity. The righteous shall live because I have decreed it so, and my word is faithful. I think that's what 2-4 means. The righteous shall live by its faithfulness, the word of God. I have declared it, and so it shall be. From that, as we want to be righteous, we place our faith in God and his word, and thus the righteous shall live by faith. So I said a mistranslation. They both make sense. It's just how do you right unpack the, the word of God? This speech that God is going to engage in is calling Habakkuk, it's calling everyone he's going to tell these words to. And I may have mentioned this earlier, God is assuming, by the way, Habakkuk is telling these speeches to other people. Mm. When God replies to Habakkuk, he's always replying in the plural. So uh, Habakkuk uses the singular to address the singular God, right? Mm -hmm. But God always replies to you all right? Uh, Multiple people, because he's assuming the people of Israel are hearing these words. He says, if you are righteous, you are going to place your faith in my word, that I am just, I remain your God. Place your faith in me. It's going to uh, unpack itself through the bulk of the chapter saying that their punishment is coming. We have these hoi or or woe oracles, woe to those that do these things. And it's going to end in 220 with the Lord that is in his temple, let all the earth keep silent before him. Mm. And Tim, I hope I'm not jumping past a question you had, but I think this is an important point. There does come a time in talking with God, seeking answers, where the final answer is going to be, you need to be still and trust that I am God. Mm Mm-hmm. And we reach that at the end of the second speech cycle. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Mm -hmm. Similar to Job, right? God is in heaven. We're on earth. So this is the end. However, it's so important to me, or I, I take so much significance from this, that the command to be still, to be quiet and trust is the end of chapter two, not the beginning of chapter one. 
Mm-hmm. Habakkuk isn't told as his first reply, you just need to trust me and be quiet. Wow, yeah. God goes through two extended dialogues with the prophet, wrestling with some very honest, some very blunt and brutal questions, and he gives answers. Yeah. And then at the end, he says, we've reached the, the, the crux. You will never understand it more clearly than this, Habakkuk. Do you trust me? Right? It ends with that kind of implied question. Is this sufficient? Will this actually make you live by faith or not? And we're going to see in Psalm 3, jumping ahead, the answer is going to be yes. Habakkuk does learn something from this. But I find that fascinating. There is a time to be still. God in his graciousness doesn't start there. He lets us wrestle. He lets us work things through to the point that they need to be. And then says, be still and know that I am God. Wow, yeah. And so, Brian, thank you. And I'm going to ask you a question in a minute about the faithfulness verse. But then... As we think about the end, I I just can't help but think of the end of the book of Job, where Job says, I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me. You know, that idea that there are certain things that are beyond our comprehensibility. They are literally too great for us to understand. But God, Mm -hmm. uh, God graciously and patiently brings us to that point. He doesn't rebuke. Uh, he he walks alongside with us even as we come to the end of the road where God says, okay, even, you know, to me, it's like even if God tried to explain it to us, we would literally be unable to understand it in the same way that, you know, an ant can't understand calculus. Uh, we just have a limit to what we can understand. But what an incredible picture of the graciousness of God, at which point, let me just go briefly back uh, to to ask you a question about the the idea that the righteous ones will live by faith or by faithfulness. Yeah, let's talk about so, that. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying, hey, the primary referent here is uh, they will live by essentially the faithfulness of God's word, that God's word is true, and because God has declared it to be true that they will live, it's it's done. There will be a remnant that will survive, my people will survive. Um, but in terms of our response, our response is then to live by faith in the faithfulness of God's word. So we trust that his word is true, and therefore we make that our compass. We make that our North Star. Because God's word is faithful, therefore I place my faith in him and demonstrate that by how I live. Am I understanding you correctly with that? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, that there's this kind of dual referent. God is saying, I'm going to be faithful to my own word, and that's why you're going to live. And then that remains the, the call for us. And I think that's how Paul uses it as well, yeah. to trust in the faithfulness of God to his own word. And that then enables us to live uh, by faith in him. Well, and Brian, I, I, I love that you brought that up, because as you were talking about that, that's what was processing in my mind. You know, as we look, for instance, in Galatians, uh, Paul says famously, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Um and so he places this supremacy on faith, but he actually points back to the, the law and points back even to Genesis within the law and says, hey, that's what it was like for Abraham from the beginning. So I, I don't know if this would be an example of, of illusion, maybe, as we think about the way that New Testament and the Old Testament build upon itself. But here we see, you know, he didn't pull that idea of faith out of nowhere. It's actually embedded in the law. And in fact, it's actually really one of the first things in the law before the 
Ten Commandments ever come or before the, you know, the Sinaitic Covenant ever comes, we have the supremacy of faith even embedded in the law itself. So I think that's an example of how, you know, Scripture builds on itself, which of course then propels us forward to the New Testament where we trust in the faithfulness of God's Word as well as place our faith ultimately in Jesus Christ. Um, so Brian, feel free to build on any of that, but then bring us home with, with the Psalm in chapter three. What does Habakkuk learn? How does it conclude? Bring us home with Habakkuk. So we'll, we'll make the turn then to Psalm three. So if chapter two ends with this call of, do you trust me? Psalm three, uh, or rather the, the Psalm that is chapter three of Habakkuk is a beautiful finale. So from the Psalm, I maybe. Mm. We could have put this in at the beginning, something that tells us Habakkuk is probably connected to the temple, mm. since Psalms and the Psalter are part of temple practice. Uh, he's maybe someone there. I mean, that's that's just a guess, but it is interesting. He writes a song. There's something about songs that touch us at our innermost parts, and when we want to communicate the most fundamental truths, yes. we go to poetry. My mind, I find that fascinating, that this is how we explain things, but this book is a dirge, uh, or rather the psalm is a dirge. It's a morning song, a song knowing that pain is coming because that's what God has promised. Habakkuk has heard God very clearly. The Babylonians are coming. Mm. The Babylonians are going to be bring punishment. There's no escape. There's no uh, parachute to jump out of this. Terrible days lay ahead, and yet God is going to be there. It's interesting in verse 2, Habakkuk is going to open this by saying, in wrath, remember mercy, right? Mm. He's still entreating God, be with us, care for us, bring us forward. But he then partially recapitulates the history of Israel, kind of bringing up some key events from their past. Mm -hmm. But he's envisioning God as this mighty warrior coming forth to do battle against the gods of chaos, of pestilence, of plague delivering his people, smiting the earth, for their God is a mighty God. And that, I think, is so important because to this point, the Babylonians have been described as warriors, mm. fearsome, terrible. As the time approaches, right, the people of Judah are going, no, there's a terrible army coming for us. And Habakkuk says, I wanted you to call to mind our God is a warrior as well. And he is far above the power of chariots. He's far above, right, the power of arms. Uh, Our God is a mighty God that can come forth. This vision is both kind of historical, it's slightly apocalyptic, if you want to use that term. Mm -hmm. But he's going to walk through this power of God being a deliverer, and he's going to come in verse 16. And he says, right, trembling enters my bones. Habakkuk, even here, does not hide who he is and his feelings from God. Mm -hmm. He says, I've heard you in wrath, remember mercy. You are God on high, but I'm scared. I'm terrified of the days that lay ahead, right? He doesn't hide it. I'm thinking a little bit of David. Some of the beauty of the Psalms, right, is David does not hide his emotions. Neither does Habakkuk. He's very blunt. He says, this is not going to be fun, is it? This is terrifying, But then in verse 17 through 19, these are some of my favorite verses in the entire book. Even if nothing good happens, and that's right, he's he's being poetic. Even if there's no figs on the vine, even if the stalls of the the mangers and and all the animals are gone, Mm. even if we have nothing left, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. This is how I know Habakkuk learned his lesson. Mm. He says, God saves. We aren't done. This is not the end. Even if this life is the end, there is still uh, 
right, the plans and purposes of the kingdom of God moves forward. Yet I will rejoice, even if nothing good ever happens again for the rest of my life. Yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that book ends on a very, I, I think, helpful note. Yeah, Job is beautiful, and I love Job. But Tim, I've wrestled sometimes. Maybe you felt this tension as well. Job ends with everything bad being reversed and Job living a good life. <laughs> and and yeah. you might go, I don't know if the, the cake was worth the bake, but um, everything good happens to Job by the end. Guess what? Life isn't like that, though. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we see our, our, our woes overdone and we're restored, but we see other people that that never happens. Mm. Their life just ends in pain and misery. Yeah. And because of that, I love Habakkuk's kind of not replacing of Job, certainly not, but I, I like to view it as a chorus. Mm-hmm. Job and Habakkuk are singing different notes that will appeal and, and help different people. Yeah. And Habakkuk's point is you don't need victory in this life. You don't need everything to be undone. You are not necessarily guaranteed an ending like Job. But even if nothing happens, God is the God of salvation. God is the God who saves that's where I've placed my hope. That's where I've placed my trust. He is the one that is going to lead me on the heights, right? As the yeah. deer uh, uh, can travel safely on the heights. So that's what God is going to do to my steps. Yeah. You know, uh, there's so many thoughts as I think about this. I mean, from the most practical vantage point, th- this happens all the time, right? I mean, if, if we think about the fall of Jerusalem as one of the greatest calamities uh, that people like Habakkuk or Jeremiah had to face in their lifetimes— that there really yeah. was no going back from that. You know, it, it wasn't as though, okay, it happens, and then, you know, even Joel, like, you know, the years that the locust destroyed will be restored to you or whatever. You know, there there are events in our lives that truly are uh, points of no return. And I don't mean that in the sense that God can't use them for good, but in the sense of life is never going to be the same on the other side of those. And mm-hmm. that's just a reality of the the fallen world. And I think sometimes, uh, you know, to use a little bit of a technical term, sometimes I think people have an over-realized eschatology where they they try and act as though the the goodness and the beauty and even the healing of the kingdom of God uh, has to come in this life or has to come in ways that we see and expect, whereas Habakkuk doesn't see that, and yet he can still say, God, I'm choosing to rejoice in you. And I think immediately of Hebrews chapter 11, right? I mean, they're, they're awaiting a city whose builder and architect is God. Uh, and that, their element of faith in the midst of that, uh, is what made the world unworthy of these people. Because they didn't look for that finality or that happy ending in this world. They're looking for it from God himself. Uh, so those are just some of my thoughts as, as we think about what Habakkuk means for us. How can, how can we find comfort in this? Uh, but Brian, wrap, wrap us up. Give us give us some final thoughts as as we uh, end this episode. So listeners, I hope this has been helpful. We get to see if we can place Habakkuk in history and see how he intertextually relates to Job. Um, that there's this beautiful extension and chorus of the, the word of God as it begins to speak into life. It helps us appreciate how we can approach God, that God is a God you can ask questions to. Mm-hmm. Just be ready to receive the answer because mm-hmm. God might give us some very hard answers. We get to see that God through the story is a God who brings up people. Um, I mean, we didn't make a big deal of it, but when this first is given, if we placed it rightly, 
Babylon is a captive and nobody people. And God says, I'm going to raise them to be this world power. Mm. I think this book also, as we see it in light of the whole council of scripture, helps us set the expectation for the New Testament. Tim, just as you said, we're not promised easy lives, but we are promised lives that have a savior. We are promised salvation for our souls mm. and uh, a hope towards an eschatology, not an overrealized eschatology in which every good thing happens to us here, but a life of significance and meaning. Uh, you went to Hebrews chapter 11, my mind also gets there, but I think of Abel, right? Mm. Who though dead still speaks. Yeah. Um, there's a faithfulness in our lives, even when they end as Habakkuk's life most likely ended in the fall of Jerusalem, mm. right? We yeah. don't know what happened to him, but not many people makes, make it out of that. Many people die in the fall of Jerusalem. Habakkuk may have been one. Mm. Even dead, he still speaks. He still speaks to the faithfulness of God. He still speaks to how we can wrestle with these deep questions. So hopefully this has been helpful. As I said, listeners, this is one of my favorite books. It's, I think, one of the more significant elements of our theology and digging into the Word of God. So listeners, we are almost at the end of series one, not the end of the podcast, just kind of our first season. In our very next and last episode of season one, we're going to start putting the pieces together, not just for one book, but the entire story of the Old Testament. We're actually going to try to give the meta narrative and use that as kind of the springboard to our next series and where the podcast is going to go from here. We'll save more on that till next time. As always, if you have questions, you can email us at inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. And until next time, stay cool and stay old.